John 21. It's on page 1090. What a privilege to, to get together and to celebrate the resurrection together. We're going to read together an account uh, that happened at some point after the resurrection. So Jesus died on Good Friday. He rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. He's already appeared to his disciples twice by this point. And then we read John 21. So let me read this and then we're going to think about it together. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, I want to tell you a story. I mean, this is a great story. We're going to get to this story. Let me tell you a story I made up, which is not so good, but might help us just to get into this story. One day, a branch turned to its tree and said, Tree. Thank you for all that you've done for me over the years. Thank you for the help you've given me in getting started. But I think the time has come for me to set out on my own in the world. Tree, I'm leaving you. And then the branch, this bit you have to kind of imagine slightly, then the branch wriggled and pulled itself from the tree and then it fell. And as it fell, it had an exhilarating feeling of freedom, of joy, as it was finally free from the tree that had kept it bound for so long. Then it hit the ground and it lay there. Now think about it. Can you picture it? It's not a branch anymore. What is it? It's just a stick. 
It's a stick. And contrary to Julia Donaldson and her well-known best-selling classic Stick Man, (laughs) sticks cannot move or talk or do anything. It's a stick. It had been a branch. And as a branch, it had been growing. As a branch, it had been fruitful. As a branch, it had a future. As a stick, it was dying. As a stick, it had stopped growing. As a stick, it could do nothing. And the message of Easter is this. Be a branch, not a stick. Be a branch, not a stick. Jesus said in John 15, just a few chapters earlier, on the night before he died, so let's trace back in time, just before he died, in in John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the tree, you're the branches. If you stay connected to me, you will bear much fruit. But if you disconnect from me, you will do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I want to suggest this afternoon that that is the message we desperately need to hear this Easter. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And that is what the disciples learnt on this day in John 21. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what this fantastic little story is here to teach us. Be a branch, not a stick. Because Jesus is risen, you don't have to be sticks, you can be branches. Look, if Jesus is dead, if Jesus went to a grave and is still there, then we're just sticks lying around on the floor dying. And it may be that sticks for a little while can have the appearance of life. But it won't be long before they're dead. If Jesus is dead, we're just sticks. But if Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus is alive, then it's possible to not be a stick but to be a branch. We'll get to all this. If this is making no sense to you, don't panic. We'll, make, we'll try and make sense of it. We're going to get into this story. I'm going to, we're just going to walk through this story. We're going to see what happened. And we're going to learn the disciples, the, the lesson the disciples learnt on that day at Galilee. Four things. Here's the first one. Firstly, I want you to see a miserable night without Jesus. A miserable night. Have a look at verses 1 to 3 with me. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. So you've got seven of the disciples and they're all together. Now how do you think they're feeling? This has really struck me this week. They've seen Jesus twice risen from the dead. And I think I always imagined that kind of like, oh, Good Friday, sad day. Saturday, sad day. Everybody's sad. Everyone's sad because Jesus is dead. Easter Sunday, everyone's happy. Everyone's excited. Everyone's full of joy. Is that what you see here? Isn't it interesting that even the disciples, when they'd seen that Jesus was alive, they're still so confused. They're still like not sure what they're doing. They're still not sure what to do. Can you imagine Peter particularly? Remember, Peter three times had denied Jesus. Three times someone had said to him, a little girl had said to him, hey, you know Jesus. And Jesus said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. 
Can you imagine that going round and round Peter's head? You know what it's like when you've messed up, don't you? It just goes round. Why did I say that? Why did I let him down? Where was my courage? Where was my heart? Where was my boldness to say that I knew this man? Why did I let him down? And is he alive? We've seen him. He's alive, but he's not going to be interested in me. I'm a failure. His failure goes round and round, and they're just sitting there, not knowing what to do. And you can imagine Peter, he's a fidget, right? Simon Peter. I'm going fishing. I'm going, I'm going, I've got to do something. I'm going fishing. Now we're not told that's a wrong thing, particularly. But there's something in Simon, I don't know why, let's go, let's go fishing. He returns to the life that he once knew. And the other seven, the other six, they say, well, we'll come with you. We've got nothing else to do. And look at the end of verse three. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. It's pretty striking, isn't it? They spend the night catching nothing. If you know anything about John's gospel, you know that the night is significant. People who don't understand, people who don't get it, come at night. Nicodemus in chapter 3 comes at night. Here are the disciples at night, in the darkness of their misunderstanding and confusion, desperately trying to do the one thing they think they're good at it, and they can't even do that. They can do nothing. Symbolic of the world in its darkness. And don't you think the words of Jesus that he said three nights earlier, four nights, five, however however much earlier, apart from me, you can do nothing. Here they are in a boat and they are doing nothing. It's such a vivid picture of their powerlessness without Jesus. They're in a boat without Jesus. And isn't life so often so frustrating, confusing? We can completely relate to Peter, I think. We don't know what to do. We're frustrated with ourselves. We're frustrated by our own failure and we kind of run around trying to do something, but it feels like we're in darkness. We feel like we're achieving nothing. And I want to say to you, without Jesus, life is ultimately futile. Without Jesus, life is ultimately darkness. Yes, you may have a little times of happiness you may have some stuff but ultimately in the big scale of things without Jesus you are in the dark you are in the night it's darkness it's like fishing and catching nothing that's where the story starts branches cut off from Jesus sticks in a boat powerless to catch anything But then look what happens. Here's the second thing I want you to see. A miracle bursting with hope. Look what happens next. Verse 4. Early in the morning. No, stop. Right? Don't skip that. Don't you feel it? Early in the morning. All night they've been fishing and caught nothing, caught nothing, caught nothing. But early in the morning. There's a... 
There's a hope, even in that phrase. It's exactly the same phrase that John used on resurrection morning. Early in the morning, the women went to the tomb. Early in the morning, because there's something new. There's something new. The darkness of the night is about to give way to the bright light of the new day. There's something happening. In John, this is a marker showing us what the resurrection of Jesus means for our world. There's something brand new. There's a whole new world. Without wanting to burst into Aladdin, I'm really holding back on Aladdin at this moment. A whole, it's coming, I can't stop it. It's coming out. Stop. A whole new world. Here it comes, right? The presence of Jesus transforms everything. The darkness of the night, the futility of the fishing, the catching of nothing, then suddenly Jesus turns up and it's early morning. It transforms everything. And so we're told early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? He knows. No, they answered. Look what he says. It's just remarkable what he says. Throw the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. That's a powerful word. You're going to very quickly be shown up whether you can tell, whether you're telling the truth. That's not a kind of, um, like a vague thing. That is a very definite, well, it's, it's either going to work or it's not. It's going to be very, very clear. And Jesus gives this command. And the command of Jesus, the word of Jesus, transforms the emptiness of their nets into an abundance. It's not like they get lucky and catch one or two. Because then you'd have gone, wow, maybe that's just coincidence. The net is full of them. They're unable to haul the net in. It's not like, oh, that was, Jesus just got lucky. There's a, it's massive, this miracle that Jesus does. This sign. The long frustration of the night gives way to the abundance of the morning. A new day has dawned. And in this new day, there is new hope for the world. And it all turns on the presence of Jesus. He turns the night into day, the emptiness into fullness. But you know, I think there may even be something more here in John's gospel, in John's mind. I think as you read through John's gospel, he often references an Old Testament prophet called Ezekiel. And what if John has in mind something even bigger? What if John uses language here very deliberately echoing an Ezekiel promise? Just keep your finger in John uh, 20. Come to Ezekiel uh, 47. Ezekiel 47, page 881. And Ezekiel was a prophet to God's people at a time when they had been cut off from God, when they had become, the branch had become a stick. They were in a place of darkness and death, in exile, a place away from God. Look what God promised was coming to his dead, dying, dark people. Look what he promised. We're going to go from halfway through verse 6. He led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, here's Ezekiel, he's seeing a vision, okay? Look what God is saying. Look what God is promising. 
When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on either side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water, that's death, there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Englaim, where there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Do you see? Here's, here's the great promise that God makes to his dead, dark, dying people. He says there's a day coming, a day when death will be turned to life, when emptiness will be turned to abundance, when darkness will be turned to light. And on that day, the fishermen will stand where? On the shore. What does John say Jesus is doing? We're told in John 21, Jesus stood on the shore. And I wonder whether John is deliberately picking up on Ezekiel and saying, don't you see, in this man Jesus, in this resurrection of Jesus, here is the one who is going to bring about this dead to life, dark to empty. Light, empty to full. He's making the point. Jesus is standing on the shore. The vision that Ezekiel saw, it starts here. As a vast abundance of fish is brought in. What a moment. Can I say, this is what resurrection means for our world. It's not, please, right? It's not just, oh, that's nice, Jesus rose from the dead. That's happy. No, this is hope for the world. This is the new day dawning. And that means that the full light of day will soon be here. Have you ever had a long night when all you've longed for is the morning to come? Some time when you you couldn't sleep and you were desperate just for the morning to arrive. And then you just begin to see the sun peek its head above the horizon and you feel the warm rays and there's still darkness around there's still bits of darkness kind of hiding around the place but you know now here it comes here it comes the light wins and every little bit of darkness all of you you'll be gone soon because the light's rising and in the resurrection of Jesus he is the sunrise He is the first fruit. He is the light dawning in the dark world. The darkness of futility, the nothingness, the empty nets. No, no, the sun is rising. He's risen. And because he's risen, all of the darkness one day will be finished. We're still waiting for the full light of day. We're still waiting for the day when all darkness will be removed. We still live in a world where there's darkness all around us. But the the sun is risen. The sun has risen. And every single little patch of darkness, every single act of evil, everything one day will be removed. And how do you know? Because on that day, Jesus stood on the banks of the shore and he brought about the new, the new world. He demonstrated it. He is the first to rise. This is why the resurrection matters. The resurrection tells us that death is dead and that life wins and when the full light of day breaks on the world the rivers will swarm with life and the people will sing for joy if that day was good 
Think of the day when Jesus returns and the sun fills the sky and all darkness is chased away. Think of the day when all emptiness is filled, when all frustration is ended. Think of that day when we will know pure joy as we gaze at the sun who's risen. What a day. And there on the banks of Galilee, they just got a little glimpse as the fishermen stood on the shore and brought in a massive catch of fish. It's a miracle bursting with hope. But look what happens next. This story, it's a miserable night without Jesus, a miracle bursting with hope, but there's a model for failures to follow. See what what happens next? They're busy hauling in this large number of fish, and then the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, uh, that sounds a bit weird, that's John's way of referring to himself. Um, I don't think it's a (laughs) big-headed... The disciple that Jesus loved, (laughs) uh, I don't think it's that. It's him, kind of, his way of talking about himself. But he says to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, you've got to watch Peter. You've got to watch Simon Peter. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. What a strange thing for a grown man to do. What a strange thing to do. Why? I want you to remember at this point that's still very fresh in Simon Peter's mind is his failure. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. We know that Peter is very aware of his failure. He has wept tears about his failure. And then Jesus is standing on the shore and he's in the boat. And something in Peter just says, I've just got to get to him. I just want to be with him. And he's not prepared to wait for them to get the boat turned around and get the fish in. He's like, I just need to get to Jesus. This heart-thumping, impulsive moment. Right, that's what Easter's about. He's risen. And all of our failure, all the ways we've let him down, all the ways we've blown it, there's hope because he's risen. And there's something... There's something in the Christian that says, I need to be with him. See, there is a good sort of guilt. We're often told that to feel guilty is bad. There's a very good sort of guilt. It's the sort of guilt that drives you to Jesus. Some guilt will make you run away from Jesus. Some guilt will make you turn your back. Some guilt will turn you in on yourself. You'll become full of self-pity. You'll be obsessed with yourself. But some guilt... Good guilt will drive you to Jesus. Simon Peter, it's like instinctive for Peter. Where where else do I go? Where else do I run? Who else do I turn to other than my Jesus, my Lord? Like a moth attracted to the light, Peter is drawn to Jesus. you You have to see Jesus standing there on the bank. Watching all this unfold. Watching his closest disciple. Watching the one who's betrayed him. Watching him leap off the boat into the water. Can you imagine Jesus? Do you not think that there's something in Jesus smiling? 
as he saw his failure friend thrashing about in the water to get to him. Here comes my Peter. And I've got grace for him. I've got forgiveness for him. And in the next story, Jesus is going to lovingly restore Peter back to himself. Do you not think Jesus' heart was bursting with joy as he waited to welcome Peter home? And Peter's standing there dripping wet. There's nothing impressive in him. He's got nothing to offer. He doesn't come to Jesus with excuses. He just comes in all his sogginess and stands there. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means that Jesus rose from the dead. The new world has come. There's hope for the world and there's hope for failures who've blown it completely. Who will simply come to him. In all the mess and the sogginess of our sin. There's nothing cool in Peter's response. There's nothing half-hearted or lukewarm. This is unrestrained and desperate passion. Forget the fish. Forget my dignity. Forget everything. I just need to be with Jesus. I was trying to, I was trying to picture this a little bit. And I, have you ever seen those videos when a soldier comes home from war? You know, and, and so it's always really moving, isn't it? And often they come home and sometimes they come in and there's like a massive crowd of people. But it's the little kid, isn't it? Who breaks out from the crowd and who just says, I just want to get to my dad. I don't care that I'm not supposed to. I don't care that there's protocol. I don't care. I just want to get to him. That's how I picture Peter at this point. I don't care how wet I get. I just want to get to him. This man is my only hope. He's my only friend. I have to get to him. And can I say the greatest sinners, the greatest failures are the most passionate in their pursuit of Jesus. And if we find our love for Jesus cool and lukewarm this Easter, perhaps we've lost sight of how much we need him. Perhaps we've lost sight of our own failure the ways we've lived our lives for ourselves. And perhaps this Easter, Jesus is saying, will you pursue me again like you once did? Will you chase me like Peter did? It's a model for failures to follow. But finally, um, there's a meal that sets the pattern. When they do get to the, to the bank, to the, to the shore. The other guys, they've, they're dragging the nets. It's like, great, Peter's gone. It's all right, we'll do the work. So they, uh, they drag the nets in. And they land, look at verse 9. They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus already got breakfast covered. It's like, oh, you've got fish. we we got some over here, but you... You've got some already. I see that. You've cooked, the, you've cooked them already. <laughs> and the whole encounter is building towards this meal. Jesus is going to provide for them. Jesus is going to feed them. If you want to be a branch, if you want to live your life as a disciple, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you have to know that Jesus provides. He feeds you. You don't feed him. And yet he's so kind to his disciples. I love this because he does say to Peter... Bring some of the fish you've just caught. 
He doesn't despise us. He doesn't despise our efforts. So Simon Peter gets back in the boat, gets pulls in the fish. They count 153. That's a lot. I don't think it's anything more than that. It's just a lot. I don't think it means anything more than that. Um, and they bring some of the fish. And he says, come on, let's get those cooked. But then in verse 12, look at this little phrase. Come and have breakfast. That's what the resurrected Jesus, the Lord of all the universe, says to his disciples. Come and have breakfast. Is that simple? Come eat with me. Come let me feed you. They're still a bit mystified. I mean, you, you sense they're still kind of like, uh, no one dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They're kind of like, it feels a bit odd, this, because you, you, you actually were dead. You definitely were dead, but you seem to be alive, and you're inviting us for breakfast. But it's definitely you. I don't think I'll be the one who asks. <laughs> and then verse 13, Jesus came. Oh, surely this isn't an accident. Jesus came, he took the bread, and he gave it to them. He's done that before in John's Gospel. With a crowd of 5,000, he took the bread, and he gave it to them. He took the fish, and he gave it to them. Here is the one who feeds his people. And when Jesus gave the bread in John 6 to the crowd, he said, you have to understand that what this represents is me giving myself. I give my body. Because Jesus is the one who provides everything that we need. He has provided himself. When he died on a cross, when he gave his body, when he died, he paid everything that we owe. He provided all that we need. And now he feeds us. And he says, you feed on me. You don't need anything else. You don't need to go anywhere else. You don't need anyone else to feed on. You come to me. I will provide forgiveness for you. I will provide power for you. I will provide everything that you need. Jesus serves them. And that is the pattern. Jesus provides. It's the basic dynamic of what it means to be a disciple. He is the bread who feeds us. It takes us to the very heart of the reason why he had to die, why he had to come. And before we run around and serve him, he first serves us. A meal that sets a pattern. A meal that says you need me. So this Easter, this Easter, I wonder if we'll learn these lessons. If we seek to live our lives without Jesus, if we seek to run around in our own strength, if we seek to go fishing on our own, if we seek to make a break from the tree in a bid for freedom, we will find a life that's miserable. A life of darkness and futility and frustration and emptiness. But if we'll come to this king, and if we'll say, I need you, I need you, we will find in him the new creation, the light, the fullness that we so desperately need. There's a wonderful old hymn that says, I need thee, oh I need thee. Every hour I need thee. That's the Christian life.
That's what the disciples had to learn on the Sea of Galilee. That's what we need. And this Easter time, let's not just treat the resurrection as a nice story. Let's instead see this king, this one, this man, to be the one that we need. Why don't we bow our heads together and let's pray. And let's thank him. And just as we bow our heads, let's, um, let's take a moment to think through the ways in which we're tempted to go it alone. Perhaps some of us, we feel our desire for Jesus has become lukewarm. Perhaps we do sit here this afternoon and think, I don't think I'd have jumped out the boat. Perhaps we can ask God this afternoon to give us again a love for Jesus, a desire for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is all that we need. We thank you, Father, that Jesus has risen from the dead and therefore we don't have to live as sticks, but we can live as branches, trusting him, feeding on him, running to him, giving him, asking him for everything that we need, trusting him completely. Father, we pray that you might teach us to be branches who cling to Jesus, who trust Jesus fully. Father, please help us to see our own failure that we might run to Jesus more readily and quickly. And Father, we ask that even this afternoon we might feed on him. In his name we pray. Amen.